said last week, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And too many people these days are falling for anything. That's why cults exist. That's why cults who take a portion of Scripture, just enough to get somebody's attention, and they twist that, and they make false doctrine out of it. It matters what you believe. Last week, we started this sermon series we're calling Building Blocks, and I had some blocks up here with me last week, and we talked about how children like to play with blocks, and I was with my grandson uh, Friday night, and I said, hey, Papa's taking you to the beach. We're going to the beach this summer. We're going to build sandcastles, and kids like to do that and build stuff and then knock it down, and they laugh about it. We said if we don't get the building blocks of our faith right, Satan will come along and he will knock down your foundation and Satan will laugh about it. And that is no laughing matter. It matters what you believe. We believe Jesus Christ can transform anybody. Anybody who comes to him in repentance and faith can be transformed and made a new creation. That's what we're all about at Transformation Church. And after that transformation, then we build on that foundation to help people know that they've been grounded and discipled in the truth. What's the goal of discipleship? The goal of discipleship is reproduction. You get somebody discipled to the point that they can reproduce themselves. The disciples make disciples who make disciples. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. And last week we said the most important foundational truth we have is this. The Bible is the Word of God. That's what distinguishes us from many other major denominations. In fact, it's, been, it's still going on again in our Southern Baptist Convention. We have those that don't necessarily believe 100% that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. So our convention will be meeting later on in June. Very, very important meeting. You pray for those that will be there. We're not able to be there. But pray they take a stand on biblical truth and don't compromise. Because when you compromise on basic foundational truths, that structure is sure to fall. Any person, church, denomination that doubts what God has declared is destined and doomed for disaster. And I say they deserve to fail when you get away from God's Word. So that's the foundational truth. I got to know the Bible is the Word of God. If there is no foundation, if there's no standard, then you have anarchy, which is what we're seeing a lot in our country today. We live in a Judges 21, 25 society. Judges 21, 25 said, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Does that not describe America today? If you want to believe that, that's okay. You believe that, I'm going to believe this. No, it doesn't matter what my opinion is. It matters what the Word of God is. So the basic foundational building block is the Bible is the Word of God. Today, the second most important thing we can talk about is assurance of our salvation. Are you absolutely certain that you are a child of God? So when, when we preach, when we have church here, not only are you hearing this, but by modern technology, this goes out on the World Wide Web. So I'm praying much that as people go out and hear this on the World Wide Web, that somebody that's confused about their faith there's some that are confused. Some just flat out know they're lost. I mean, I know some people who just will flat out tell you, I'm lost, and I know that. I'll try to be generic because it is on the Internet, but someone, a, a distant step relative, had a massive heart attack Friday night um, related to my stepmother who just went to be with the Lord. And we really thought when my stepmother passed away, they were so close, it would soften his heart, and he'd give his heart to Jesus, but it did not. And his brothers witnessed to him over and over. He's heard me preach the gospel, had a massive heart attack. I'm praying God will soften his heart to realize we all have an expiration date on our life. None of us live physically forever. We can live forever eternally, but not physically. So it matters that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you today about counterfeit Christian 
or devoted disciple. Counterfeit Christian or devoted disciple. Have you ever been into a place of business and you give them a 20 or a 100? I don't do that a lot because I'm a church planter. But if you have a 100 and you give them that, sometimes they'll hold it up to the light or they'll take a special marker and mark through it. Why do they do that? They're making sure it's not counterfeit. They want to make sure it's the real deal. It costs businesses millions every year counterfeiting and shoplifting and all of that. So that's important. But it's important that when you say you are a Christian, you know what you mean, and your life gives evidence of that. The Bible has a lot to say about counterfeit Christians. You may have heard me say before, one of our favorite family movies of all time is the Christmas movie Elf. We watch it every single year. We laugh like we've never heard it before. And Will Ferrell dresses up like an elf. And, you know, he's there at the North Pole with Santa and his helpers. And Will Ferrell dresses like an elf. And he builds, tries to build toys like an elf. He talks like an elf and tries to mimic an elf. But in reality, Will Ferrell, buddy, was no elf. He was, he was a human like us. And it's a funny movie, but the sad reality is there are many people who try to talk like a Christian, dress like a a Christian, or act like a Christian, but in reality, they're not a child of God. We have cheapened the word Christian these days to not mean a whole lot anymore. You know, if you're conservative, if your parents were Christians, you just automatically say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Did you know the word Christian is only used in the New Testament three times? The Bible says in Acts eleven twenty six, 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The church had already launched for a little while before Antioch, but they were first called Christians there. The word disciple is used in the New Testament alone 281 times. A disciple is a somebody who is a committed follower of Jesus Christ, so we've cheapened the term Christian. And statistics of modern evangelism are pretty startling. And I've served two different stints as a vocational evangelist. And as the more I traveled, the more I was in other churches, I realized more and more that there's a whole lot of church members that don't know the Lord. They don't give evidence of knowing the Lord. Statistics of modern evangelism tell us this, and I'm not proud of it. It's just, it is what it is. 80 to 90% of decisions for Christ, I'm putting air quotes around that if you're listening, decisions for Christ fall away within a matter of years. 80 to 90% of decisions for Christ fall away. When I was in evangelism, when I was a student pastor, we'd have youth camp and kids profess the Lord. I'd preach revivals and people would be saved. And people say, Mike, how many were saved at revival? My answer was always the same. I didn't vary on the number. I said, ask me in a year, and I'll give you a better idea of that. A decision for Christ is not necessarily someone who's repentant and given their life to Jesus. In 1991, a major U.S. denomination of over 11,000 churches recorded 294,000 decisions for Christ. That is impressive. 294,000 decisions for Christ. One year later, they could only account for 14,000 of those. What happened to the other 280,000? Somebody patted them on the head, said, sugar fell off this card, which happened to me when I was in the 10th, when I was 10 years old. A sweet little lady said, honey, fell off this card, patted me on the head and said, you're going to heaven. And I walked out of that place just as lost as a ball in high weeds. Nothing changed in my life. If 294 can profess the Lord and a year later only 14,000 are in fellowship, something is wrong. Something is wrong with our methodology. Jesus Christ, the way of the master was, he used the law. He used the Old Testament law to show people their lost condition. 
Because what a lot of what masquerades today is evangelism is really it's only like life enhancement or your best life now, if you will. And people are told that, and they just want to get, have a better life. There's no understanding of sin. There's no understanding of, of the law. There's only, hey, I want a better life. I don't want to go to hell. Who wants to go to hell? Nobody wants to go to hell. And so that's the world that we live in, and that's often the methodology that's given. Let me give you this example. Imagine there's two guys get on the same flight. There's a packed out flight of people on an airplane traveling overseas. One man, they say, hey, we're going to give you this parachute, and it's going to enhance your journey. If you'll wear this heavy parachute, it will enhance your journey. So the dude wants a better, he puts a parachute on, and he tries, but it's heavy, and he's weighted down, and he realizes he's starting to slump over under the weight of that thing, but he wants to enhance his trip. He wants it to be better, and people start snickering and pointing at him and laughing at him under that burden. He takes that parachute off, and he slings it and says, I'm never going to try that again. I tried it, and it didn't work. There's another guy who's given a parachute, and he's told, you better put on this parachute because your very life depends on it. At any moment in this flight, you could have to jump 25,000 feet, and without this parachute, you're going to certain destruction. Which one has genuine faith in that parachute? What's the second guy? So if you tell somebody, you, well, you can have your best life now. This will enhance your life. You can do better. You can go to heaven. But we don't tell them the grave consequences of rejecting Christ. That's when we get a lot of these false converts that people talk about throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Scriptures, turn to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> a very familiar and a very frightening passage. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, if you're physically able, let's stand and honor the reading of God's Word, because it's true for all people, for all places, and for all times. You'll recognize this scripture probably. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But at night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. Then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field, is, the field where you planted that good seed's full of weeds. Where'd they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds or the tares, tie them into bundles and burn them and, and to put the wheat in the barn. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the clarity of your word. We're thankful that the gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again is the same gospel that we proclaim today. It's still the only message by which people can be saved and sure of their salvation and know you in a life-transforming way. So God, I pray if there's anyone here today, anyone listening on the World Wide Web that is unsure of their relationship with you, or they know they're lost, they know they've never given their life to Jesus, God, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Speak, Lord. We're listening, and we want to hear from you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. What, what, what a sad and a frightening story. This is not a sensational story that some hyper-emotional preacher made up. This is the Word of God. That's our basic foundation we talked about last week. So picture in your mind, there's a farmer. He's going out. He's looking for fertile soil. He's looking for the best place to plant his garden. And the farmer plows up the ground, and he gets it ready. I did that for my little garden in my backyard. By the way, I'm done. 
I'm done with trying to garden, okay? I never did that until my kids both graduated from high school and after going to football band cheerleading and all those things, like, what do we do now? I don't have kids stuff, so we planted a garden. And I did okay in middle Georgia. When I moved up here, I said, I'm never going to plant a garden. My backyard is like this, and there's deer all over the place. Well, during COVID, we were at home, and I thought, okay, I'll try planting a garden. And I had a little bit of success, and I'm cheap. I'm a wise steward, let me say that. So I like to spend any money I don't have to spend. So rather than buy the plants that were already mature and putting them in my little garden, I bought seeds. Well, then I had to buy something to put the seeds in to get them ready. Well, about half of those seeds survived. And then when I took the thing off and I put them outside, then about another half, I learned something about squash and zucchini last year. You can overwater them. We had so much rain last year, killed my squash and zucchini. You can overwater it. So I'm just, I'm done with it. I, I got a whole 12 seeds of pepper plants. I got three of those things left. I've spent more money. I could have gone to Walmart or Kroger and bought everything I need for less money. But this farmer, he wanted to see, he wanted to see like I wanted to see a good yield. I wanted to see fruit produced from my garden. This farmer waters it. He fertilizes it. I went up there and weeded that thing again yesterday, and he waits for it to grow. And finally, the seed bursts through the ground with the little green leaves, and they start to grow. And all the plants look alike, and you can't tell the real from the false. In this parable, of course, the farmer is God. The enemy is the devil, and the seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is like little bitty seeds scattered all around. Some in the road, some in the weeds, but everywhere you look, you got little bitty seeds. I had a flashback to a kid's song right there. We used to sing at youth camp. But I believe this passage, along with one of my heroes, Dr. Bailey Smith, says that this passage really speaks to unsaved church members, people that look like a Christian, like Buddy the Elf. They act like a Christian. They try to put on the Christian face at least on Sunday, maybe on Wednesday. But in reality, in their heart of heart, they don't know. You say, well, Mike, if you think so many church members are lost, why, why, why do you keep baptizing people? Why do you... Well, Preachers, we don't have a super spiritual microscope. I can't look at anybody's heart. I want to faithfully proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins, the need for repentance, and I can't see, I don't know that anybody in this building saved. Not, I, I think those of you that I don't think you are, but I don't know that. I hope you think I'm saved, but you don't know that. You can't look into my heart, and I can't look into your heart. That's something that only you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit know. Imagine. When we look at these statistics of modern evangelism, how many fall away, and I'm just going to tell you, when I was a drunk in places I ought not to be, people were nicer to me than some churches I've been in. I'm just going to tell you the truth right there. I understand. You know the reason some people don't come to church? Because they've been before. They've been before, and they got bit. They got treated ways that you shouldn't be treated in church. But I've, I've been treated better in other places. So some people won't even come to church because they've been. We talked about that early this morning, didn't we? We were setting up this morning. Uh, so... um. What would Houston County look like? Excuse me, Hall County. Houston County, 19 years. Hall County, just seven years. I get my H's mixed up. What would our county look like if just those who were members of churches were genuinely born again, were genuine disciples of Jesus Christ who wanted to lead others to Jesus and disciple them? Do you think our county would look different? Do you think some of the businesses that exist to poison the minds and hearts of our children, we could shut some of those things down? If everybody that was a member of a church really lived like somebody, but he says it's like the, the wheat and the tares, they were growing together. And if you try to pull them up yourself, you can yank up some good and waste it. So he said, no, you wait for the end of the age and let the Lord weed those out. I say, I don't know who's saved and who's not. You know, I've seen over the years, I've seen pastors 
say, I got saved. I've seen pastor's wives say, I got saved. I've, I've shared, if you've been around me long, you've heard me share the story. I'll never get over it. I was preaching in Rents, Georgia, R-E-N-T-Z, and Dr. Larry Daniels was the pastor. He's now retired, but by the way, he supports our church every month. He might not want me to tell that, but he believes in what God's doing up here in North Georgia. I preached revival twice for him, gave the invitation. A precious senior adult lady comes. I rejoice. I'm thrilled because, you know, statistically, if somebody doesn't give their life to Jesus by the time they're about 13, 98% never will. The importance of reaching them in children's ministry. So when a senior adult professes, Lord, that's a big deal. But the pastor said, do you know who that woman is? And I said, no, I never even heard of Rents, Georgia, until you invited me to come here. That woman is the widow of a pastor. She was married to a pastor and served the Lord faithfully, and she just gave her life to Jesus Christ. I didn't know her, but the Lord knew her, and he called up her number before it was everlasting too late. I was preaching in Sylvester, another church in South Georgia. Gave the invitation. The Holy Spirit of God blew in. The altars were filled, and people were getting saved. And I saw the children's pastor walk out with the lady. And I thought, praise the Lord, somebody else is going to, he's going to lead somebody else to Jesus. What I didn't know, that was the children's pastor's wife who gave her life to Jesus. And so just because you come to church, you look like a Christian and try to act like a Christian on Sundays, I don't know your heart, and you don't know mine. Don't let mama, daddy, granddaddy, grandmama, anybody else, oh, sugar, you're okay, you're saved. And it was a youth pastor It used to drive me crazy. We'd go off to youth camp, and I'd have young people genuinely get saved and born again, and you bring them back, and mama says, ah, you did that when you were 10. You did that. You don't need to do that. You're already saved. And I've watched the cold water committee come along and douse the flames of the heart. Don't ever say that to anybody. You know, both of my children were in church nine months before they were born. Both of my children professed the Lord early, as early children. They heard about the gospel their whole life. Both of my children subsequently later on came back and said, I need to genuinely be saved. Are you saying, Mike, a child can't be saved? I'm not saying that at all. My wife professed the Lord at a very early age as a little girl. She's never doubted it. Lived for the Lord. She's got a clear testimony far better than any I would ever have. So I've seen students that, that were under my leadership lead people to Jesus and later on get saved. How do you explain that? Well, it's the Bible. The power is in the Word of God, not the person. If God can speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, He can speak through anybody. And people say, well, what are people going to say about me? I know when my son professed the Lord when he was a little bit older, sixth grade instead of little, somebody said, does that embarrass you? You're the youth pastor and your son wasn't saved? I wanted to knock them in the teeth and tell God they died. No, I don't care how many times they have to get that to get it right. I'm thrilled that my son has assurance that I thought he had. I thought my son had assurance, but he didn't. I'm thrilled. The only people that get mad when church members get saved are other lost church members. Otherwise, they celebrate and they rejoice. So this morning, the introduction is longer than the sermon. This morning, I want us to kind of claim 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We're not thinking about everybody else. We're not thinking about our neighbors. We're not thinking about our family. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you failed the test of genuine faith. So if you say you're a Christian, take me back to that point. Tell me what happened. Tell me what your understanding was. Did you understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins? Did you understand that apart from Jesus, there is no hope? You say, well, no, I believe God's a good God, and he is a good God. I don't believe God would ever want to send anybody to hell. He doesn't. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but all that would come to repentance and faith in him. He is a good God. Because he's good, he must punish and judge my sin and your sin. So, you know, if all you did was, you know, I, when I was in the 
fourth grade and this preacher preached on hell. We were in a high school auditorium in a big room like this. I'd never heard preaching like that. That man scared me to death. I'd have done whatever they told me to do. So I filled out the card and everybody patted me on the head and said, we're so glad you're going to heaven. Thank God I wasn't confused about that. I knew as a 10-year-old boy there was nothing different in my life. All I said is, I don't want to go to hell. I didn't know what sin, I, I guess I knew what sin was, but there was no genuine repentance. I wasn't interested in selling out and being a disciple. I just didn't want to go to hell. If all you did is cry, slobber, and snot, and fill out a card, and there's been no transformation in your life on the authority of the Word of God, I'm telling you, based on God's Word, you're not saved. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How is your life different? And people say, well, you know, I think I'm saved, preacher. I'm just not sure. You know, if I was out here walking down Old Cornelia Highway and a tractor trailer hit me and I survived, do you think I would say, you know what, I think I got hit by a truck today, but I'm not quite sure what happened. No, I think you would know it. If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit step out of heaven and into your life and transform your life, you are going to know that. First John 5, 13 says, these things have I written that you can know that you have eternal life. When he transforms your life, you'll know it, and people around you will know it, and September the 8th, 1998, baseball's Mark McGuire steps up to the plate. We didn't know he was on steroids at the time. He steps up to the plate for the chance to break Roger Maris's single-season home run record that had stood since 1961. But something happened. Watch this clip and see if you can see what happened. We would like to welcome those of you who have been watching the Houston Astros and the Cincinnati Reds on our FX cable channel as Matt McGuire looks on, wondering if this is the at-bat. Tuesday, September 8th, that Mark McGuire moves one place in front of Roger Maris. Did you notice anything different in that clip? He realized he didn't touch first base. If he'd have made it all the way home without touching, tagging first base, he would have been out at home plate. I'm afraid too many professing believers will step into eternity to say, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I taught Sunday school. I went on mission trips. And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You never repented of your sins. You never made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. I'm afraid that people I know are going to hear that. Any kind of gospel preaching that does not result in life transformation is foreign to the New Testament. You won't see anybody in the New Testament being saved that their life was not transformed. You said, now, wait a minute. You said your wife was saved as a little girl. She wasn't smoking, cussing, drinking, running around, doing. How do you know her life was different? Well, I didn't know her then, but her mom and daddy did, and they saw a change in her life. Now, I told you my son got assurance of salvation later. You know, as a parent, it's the most exciting thing, and it's the most terrifying thing at the same time. It was for me anyway. 
because my kids heard the gospel their whole life. They grew up in church. So I knew that, you know, I expected this to happen early, but I couldn't see their little hearts and know. So when John Michael first professed the Lord, I said, God, let me see something in his daddy to give me peace to know this boy understood it. He hadn't committed a lot of gross sins at that point. But, you know, one of the things my son was shy, he wouldn't pray out loud. And after that, he was, he was not ashamed to pray out loud. So I felt like that was the Lord giving me that assurance in this daddy's heart that he got it and he understood. Well, later on when he came back in the sixth grade and said, no, I didn't understand. I want to be sure. I didn't stand in his way. But I said, son, when you get to heaven, the Lord may say, yeah, you were saved when you were a little boy. Or maybe you were saved in the sixth grade. To me, it don't matter when it was as long as you know. As long as you know in your heart, that's all that matters. And, and, and the, take your copy of Scripture and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Turn to Mark 4. Anytime you see the words behold or listen in Scripture, Charles Stanley was good about that. He would stretch those big old long arms and say, listen. Y'all remember that? Dr. Stanley would say, listen. And I would always sit up and listen. When Charles Stanley said, listen, you listen. When you say listen or behold or hark in the Bible, it's like a trumpet sounding to get your attention. Listen. Pay close attention. The trumpet sounds. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4 and verse 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Listen to this. Behold. We got double trumpets. We got to listen and behold. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. When the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root. It withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, 100 times as much. Verse 10 says, as soon as he was alone, as, as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12 disciples, began asking him about the parables. Verse 13, Jesus said to him, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Jesus says, this is the foundational parable to understanding all the parables. He's talking about assurance of salvation. To understand the parable of the sheep and goats, you got to get this parable. To understand the parable of the lost treasure, you got to understand this parable. To understand the parable of the foolish virgins, you got to understand this one. To understand the parable of the wheat and the tares, you got to get this one. He said, a lot of seed goes out. But it all doesn't produce fruit. So it was a long introduction. Let's get to the message. Number one, I want us to consider characteristics of counterfeit Christians. Characteristics of counterfeit Christians. Letter A, they're often in church. We just read this in the parable of the soils. They were there together where the farmer planted the seeds in the same field. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? They were there together. Matthew 12, 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field, but that night the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. They were right there together. Maybe they joined the church at the same time. Maybe their baptismal certificate had the same date on it. It's hard to tell the difference at that point. You know, when you take the flu vaccine, I used to, I don't anymore. I'll tell you later why if you want to know. But when you take the flu vaccine, they give you part of the live vaccine, part of the live flu, but not the full flu. It's enough to keep you from getting the full-blown flu. I'm afraid that too many churchgoers have relied on, some of you are old enough to remember this commercial, was it Dippity-Doo? Was it Dippity-Doo that said a little dab will do you? Or was that Brill Cream? One of those commercials, when it comes to Jesus, a little dab won't do you. They get a little dab and they think they're okay, but they're still just as lost as a ball in tall grass. They can be in church together, they can profess the Lord, they can cry, they can snot, they can slobber and still be lost. Letter B was another characteristic of lost, of unsaved church members. They show immediate growth but they lack depth. 
it looks like immediate growth. They spring up real fast, and they get a lot of notice and fanfare. It's like when a famous person, do y'all remember when Jane Fonda? I mean, it's Memorial Day. That woman is a traitor to our nation. She deserves to be in jail, that woman does. But remember years ago, she supposedly professed the Lord. I think it was a housekeeper or somebody supposedly led her to Jesus. And everybody, we're all excited. Jane Fonda, one of the most hated women in American history by true patriots anyway, professes the Lord. And everybody pray. But if you've watched her life, she's gone right back to the same, espousing the same garbage that she used to espouse. When a famous singer, an athlete gets saved, we're thrilled. But we, we better be careful because they can shoot up real fast, but there's no depth there. And in the parable, he's saying that's not true fruit. They're not really saved, you know, because they spring up. But then when the scorching heat comes, the temptations and the troubles of life, Scripture says we get refined by the fire. It's when we go through the fire that our faith is, is manifested and made known. But when you spring up quickly and there's no root to get the nutrients, the fires come and they'll burn them up. That's what happens. They can spring up quickly once the seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed spattered quickly because the soil was shallow. Matthew 13, 26, when the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. So they're growing, and it looks like something's happening. They start off with a bang and big fanfare, and every church wants to book them and have them. And you know, I, I can use some current examples, but I won't. I won't use, but, but you can think just in recent years of, of athletes who profess the Lord and fellowship of Christian athletes bring them in and share their testimony, and the next thing you know, they're being arrested, DUI. Does that mean they're lost? I'm not saying saying that being saved doesn't mean we're perfect but it means we ought to have victory over our sin and when we do sin I'm convicted about it and I want to do something about it and repent if the word people say well I got into the word and I read the word you got into the word but here's the difference does the word get into you because when the word gets into you it'll rock your world and transform your life you can look so much like a growing Christian springing up quick that people don't know Mark 4 13 Jesus said to him if you can understand the meaning of this parable how will you understand the other parables? The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message, only to have Satan come at once and take it away. These people never profess the Lord. They're not interested. The devil just tramples them. The seed on the rocky soil we're talking about represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. They look like they're growing. They act excited. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's Word. Like an Alka-Seltzer Christian. You know what an Alka-Seltzer is? Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Remember that commercial? Alka-Seltzer Christians, somebody who you think they're fine till they hit the water and they just fizzle right out. And there's no lasting change there. Let her see they love the things of the world more than God. They love that they say I love Jesus, they say I like going to church, but they love the things of the world really more than him. Look at Mark 4:18. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. Are you more concerned with pleasing Jesus or getting more money? Are we more concerned with impressing others or impressing the Lord? Back when the old Soviet Union was still under communism and it was illegal to be a Christian, it was illegal to, go, to have Bible study unless you went to their, um, the Orthodox Church, which wasn't a whole lot of truth being preached there. But these Russian soldiers heard about a Bible study and they busted him with their guns, with guns blazing, and said, anybody in here who, who says you believe in Jesus and you want to live, you better get out of here right now. If you, if, you, if you genuinely believe in Jesus, you stay here, the rest of you leave. And so a bunch of folks got up and left. They didn't want to die. 
After that happened, these people that were there were scared to death. They weren't going to deny the Lord. They were willing to die for their faith. Those soldiers locked the door, put down their guns. They pulled out their Bibles and said, we're believers too. But we can't risk getting in trouble. We had to separate the sheep from the goats before we let you know that we're Christians too. What would, what's going to happen in America when persecution comes? And it's coming. And we say sometimes now we're persecuted, but nothing like the Scripture says is going to happen. I think maybe a good dose of persecution is start to separate the goat from the sheep in America. People who want this easy believism, your best life now. God wants to bless you and heal you. And preachers saying that with the glasses on their face. I'm like, heal yourself if God can heal anybody and everybody, okay? Do I believe God can heal? Yes, I believe God can heal. But he doesn't choose to heal everybody. The apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. People just want all the goodies and the promise of heaven. But you let persecution come, they're like that fruit that sprang up, that weed that sprang up, and when the persecution of heat comes, they wither up and they die. If the Russians come in here today or the Chinese or whoever and say, if you really believe in God, stay. If you want to live, get out of here right now. I want to believe I'd stay right here because you know what happened? I'd be absent from this body and present with the Lord if they chose to take my life. Counterfeit Christians go back to the ways of the flesh. Scripture says, like a dog returning returning to his vomit. You ever heard a testimony like this? I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10 years old. Then I got involved in sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, and I got in fights all the time. But I had Jesus in my heart, and when I was 40, I went back to the Lord. Have you ever heard testimonies like that? I'm going to be honest with you. That, that was my daddy's testimony. You know, I didn't see any fruit in my daddy's life. I just prayed for the day that my daddy might go to church with me. But I'm telling you what, my daddy got sure enough born again, and I had a brand new daddy. He was a new creation. In my mind, that's my dad's salvation. He liked to say he rededicated his life, but I'd never seen any fruit in my whole life until then. When did my daddy get saved? doesn't matter to me as long as he knows he's in heaven, and I know that he is now by the evidence of his life. So you can say that I did all these things. Listen, you can do all that, but if you say, well, it don't bother me. It don't bother me when I cuss, smoke, drink, and chew and date girls who don't, don't, don't bother me when I do all that. One of two things is the truth. Either you're lying to me or you're illegitimate. Because if you're a child of God, trust me, I know. I've been on the receiving end of God's whippings. He will chastise. He will discipline those that he loves. So we've looked at some characteristics of, of false believers. What about characteristics of devoted disciples? Look at Mark 4.20. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. How, how, how can you conclude that somebody might genuinely be born again. Letter A, they produce a lot of fruit. They produce fruit in their life. They're not happy just to come and sit in church and listen to a message, go out and live like nothing ever happened. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. I love the translation that says we're God's masterpiece. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do the good works. He's called us to do good works and influence people. It's why on July the 29th, we have our next big major church outreach. We have our backpack ministry. And we're, we've already got backpacks. We're collecting the things. Miss Barbara is away in, I think, Wisconsin's where she's from. She messaged me yesterday and said, Pastor, I was out shopping with a cousin wherever she was. She said, I went to Walmart, and I got pairs of little girls' underwear for $3. I bought 30 pair. So we're getting ready for that backpack ministry. Why are we giving out backpacks with school supplies?
supplies and underwear and Bibles in it because we want this community to know that not only do we love them, but Jesus loves them, and he will transform their life. If you're producing fruit in your life, you want to be a part of things like that. You want to be a part of a church that cares about their community. So they produce much fruit. Let it be they give evidence of repentance. Matthew 3, 8, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. I think of the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. A wee little man was he. He was the tax collector. And when he came down out of that tree, you know, sycamore tree, he was in a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees have no bark on them. You know why? He came down out of that sucker so fast he just skinned the tree to get to Jesus. He was getting to him as quick as he could. Zacchaeus gave evidence of repentance. He asked for forgiveness and said, Lord, for all the people that I've ripped off, I want to pay back four times what I stole from them. That's evidence of repentance. The evidence of repentance is a transformed life. So a true Christian will produce much fruit. They'll give evidence of repentance. Let her see they'll display the fruit of the Spirit. We'll display the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, you notice that word is singular and it's not plural. It doesn't mean, well, I can have love, joy, peace, but I don't have patience, goodness, and self-control. No, it's the fruit. If you're saved, we should demonstrate all of these. It's a package deal, Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes upon us at the moment of salvation, produces this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, we've nailed our passions, our desires, our sinful temptations. We've nailed those to the cross and crucified them there. I heard a story of a pastor who had a very compassionate, he just epitomized what it means to be a pastor. He loved the sheep. He loved people. He wanted to help people. There's a knock at the door at three o'clock in the morning, and he must have been a hard sleeper like me. Of course, I have a CPAP machine on, so I don't hear anything. But his son heard a knock at the door. Teenage son goes to the door, and his man says, I, I, need, I need to speak to the pastor. I need counsel. So he went and got his daddy, and his daddy got up, got dressed, went downstairs to talk to the man. And as the dad stepped into the room, that guy pulled out a giant machete and started hacking away at the pastor. His two teenage sons nearly beat that guy to death to get him off their dad. And so the next day, people were talking in the community. said, did you hear about that? Did you hear about that guy that attacked the senior pastor at that church? And you ain't going to believe this. He's a Christian. He's a member of my church. He goes to church with me. And somebody said, excuse me if I sound harsh, but I don't think at that time he was displaying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He didn't, certainly didn't have any self-control. On the authority of God's word, either that man had a demonic spirit, or he was um, under the influence of something, or he didn't know the Lord, because we will have the fruit of the Spirit in our life if we're truly saved. We don't have to beg people to come to church. We don't have to beg people to serve. We don't have to beg people to tithe. We don't have to beg people to witness. I think back, how many hours have I spent chasing after people, trying to get them to do right, and looking back from this vantage point of the age I am now, think, how much time did I waste trying to get people back to, re to repent or give them wise counsel, what they just needed was repentance. They just need to get saved. Because if you're genuinely, now we believe in discipleship. It's a big key ingredient of our church. We're gearing up to launch our discipleship groups in the fall. We're all about discipleship. But here's the reality. If I genuinely get saved and you don't disciple me, I can still grow. You say, well, that's not so. That poor old Ethiopian eunuch, what did he do? He had his Bible, and he had the Holy Spirit, went back to Ethiopia when nobody could disciple him. And because of the Ethiopian eunuch, that became a continent for Jesus at one point in history. So, yeah, we ought to be about discipleship, but a genuinely born-again person, you don't have to beg them to live for Jesus. There's coming a day when the real and counterfeits are going to be separated. Matthew 13, 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and put the wheat in the barn. Burn them. He's talking about hell, where lost people will spend all of eternity forever and forever. 
He said, well, I really don't know how to wit- How do I get people to know they're lost? People say, I'm a good person. I'm better than a lot of Baptists I know. And that may be a true statement. But you say, you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I've heard the Ten Commandments. You believe? Oh, I believe the Ten Commandments. Ha- have you ever lied to anybody? Well, yeah, I've lied before. Have you ever stolen anything? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. You just admitted you're a liar. How do I know you're telling the truth or not? Well, never taken a pen from work or a piece of candy. Yeah, okay, yeah, I've, I guess so. What does that make? It makes you a thief. Makes you a, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? One. Jesus said if you lust upon a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You ever done that? And the guy's just like, so you just admitted to me you're a lying, thieving adulterer is what God's Word calls you, and you're agreeing with me there. That's a problem. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because I'm a sinner, that's just three of the Ten Commandments. We don't have time to go through all of them to see that many of us have violated most of them at some point in our life. But because I'm guilty, I cannot save myself, God demonstrated his love toward us, Romans 5, 8, and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And we can repent and give our life to him. John Wesley was one of 19 children born to a praying mama, Susanna Wesley. He and his brother Charles came with General James Edward Oglethorpe on the second ship to ever come to colonize the state of Georgia. The first ship was the, queen, was the ship the Queen Anne, which my mother's ancestors were on that first ship there. But they came to, to evangelize the Native Americans, the Indians, and they preached the gospel. And, and you know, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, which was a Bible-believing denomination back then. And thank God for Bible-believing Methodists today who are separating and say, we're not going to go along with the deviation from God's Word in our denomination. Those who want to, they can do that, but we're going to stand for the truth. Over 30,000 people professed Jesus under the preaching of John Wesley. But you know what you might not know? John and Charles Wesley both struggled with assurance of salvation. John Wesley said, I preached a gospel that was strange and foreign to me. He was on a boat back to England when some Moravian missionaries were sharing the gospel with him. He's an ordained Anglican priest at that point. He's preached the gospel. People have been saved. These Moravian missionaries shared with him. And on May the 24th, 1738, in the harbor at Aldersgate, London, after years of torment and doubt, John Wesley said, I repented and I genuinely was born again and had assurance of my salvation from that point on. If John Wesley struggled, shouldn't be a shock sometimes with those among us who struggle. Can you imagine what it would have been like if John Wesley had died before then? And he gets to heaven and says, but God, 30,000 people professed the Lord under my preaching. God, I went, I went to dangerous territory, uncolonized colony of Georgia. I preached the gospel to these dangerous Indians, and people got saved. And he would say, depart from me. For I never knew you. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but solely the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were the devil and you were in charge of confusing people, which one of these is a better strategy? If you were the devil, would you try to get saved people to doubt their salvation? Or would you try to get lost people to say, hey, you're all right, you're all right, and and he knows you're lost, but he wants you to think you're okay. I I think the better strategy of Satan is to go to church folks and say, hey, you're not as bad as that mean old deacon that lives over there. You're not as bad as this person who professed the Lord and then blew their testimony. You're not, well, yeah, I'm not that bad. I think the strategy of Satan is to lull us. So I, I believe in God. The book of James says you believe in God, good. The demons believe in God too, and they tremble. You say outwardly, I'm saved, but in your heart, your heart's going, I'm lost, I'm lost, I don't know that I'm saved. Maybe you just wanted to please your granddaddy so you could see him in heaven, or your grandmama on judgment day. Many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We helped with vacation Bible school. We helped little ladies across the street. We poured Kool-Aid for the homeless. And he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. 
Does the evidence of your life, this is our conclusion, does the evidence of your life show a counterfeit Christian or a devoted disciple? Nobody can answer that question but you. Number two, there's nothing wrong with being sure. Gary Morton, who I served with for 19 years at Second Baptist, who was here when we had our church, uh, our commission and constitution Sunday. Gary Morton, I heard him say it a thousand times, there's nothing wrong with being sure. His wife, Miss Jan, is a godly woman who sings like an angel. Sweet, well, leads the ladies' ministry down there now. She was married to Brother Gary, who was a worship pastor for years and had two little boys, and then she got saved after all of that. Anybody who knew Jan Morton would have said, surely she's saved, but in her heart, she wasn't sure. If you were not a Christian, and every Christian in Northeast Georgia only shared the gospel as faithfully as you do, what would the chances be of you getting saved? That makes sense? If, if, if every Christian in North Georgia, if every person who named the name of Jesus in North Georgia shared the gospel as faithfully as we do right now and you were lost, what's the chance of you knowing the Lord, hearing the gospel? It's why we exist, to let this community know there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The little book of 1 John is five chapters long. It was written to religious people who had questions about their salvation. He said, hey, here's an evidence of salvation. Here's an evidence of salvation. And you get to chapter 5 and verse 13, the end of the book, John says, these things have I written that you can know that you have eternal life. So I've said many times, preaching in many different places, hey, folks, I, I don't think I'm saved. People just look at me like, why are you an evangelist? I, 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 folks, I, I, I don't hope I'm saved. And they're thinking, why did our church bring you in? You know, I, I don't think I'm saved. I don't hope I'm saved. I don't, I'm so saved, it's pitiful. I know that I know that I know that he rocked my world and he transformed my life on the authority of God's word. I know that, that I'm bound. I'm, am I perfect? Absolutely not. I mess up all the time. But because of Jesus' blood, nothing will ever separate me from the love of God. I wonder, do you know him in that kind of way? Let's pray together. You've heard Pastor Matt's testimony several times. He, right out of high school, joined a gospel singing group. He traveled the country singing gospel music, telling people about Jesus. But it was after he and Jenny were already married that Matt gave his life to Jesus. And later on, Jenny did the same thing, if I've got that order correctly. You can do all these things, but if you don't have peace and assurance of your heart, if you've never understood that you are a sinner who's violated God's law, violated God's commandments, and I deserve to be in hell right now, but I'm not, only because of the grace of God, not because anything Mike's done, but because the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If you've never given your life to Jesus, admit to Him, you know you're a sinner. In your own way, you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've disappointed you. I've shamed you. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life. You just confess that to the Lord now. God, I believe Jesus died in my place. He never sinned. You believe they laid him in a borrowed tomb and three days later he came back to life to purchase our salvation. If you believe that, say, oh God, I believe that. Ask God to save you today and to give you absolute assurance and confidence. Because a professing believer that's unsure of their salvation, they're not going to walk in victory. They're not going to share their faith. They're not going to tell other people about something they're not sure about. So for this church to impact Northeast Georgia, every one of us who are members of Transformation Church need to know that we're saved and faithfully share the truth of God's gospel. Father, you do right now what only you can do. Only you transform lives. Only you save souls. 
If you want to do that in this place today, Lord Jesus, I pray you'll do it. If you want to do it later on, people listen to this message on the World Wide Web. Lord, save the souls closest to eternity. Give us an assurance in our heart that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You accomplish in this season, this time, what you want to accomplish. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen and amen. If you're unsure of your relationship with the Lord, I'll be right down here. I'd love to talk to you. If you got questions about what it means to be a member of Transformation Church, I'd love to talk to you. If you just want somebody to pray with you, we'd love to do that. If you want to come and pray privately, we don't have our altar set up today. We didn't set up stage this morning. But if you just want to come and kneel on this padding down here and pray, you do that. Whatever the Lord tells you to do before we leave today, let's every one of us say, I've done what he wants me to do. Amen. Let's stand together.